Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome to the Badass Women's Hour podcast. Three women, one podcast, and a whole load of badass. With me, Harriet Minter, but no Natalie or Emma this week. They're off on holiday. Instead, I'm joined by presenter and vocal coach, Carrie Grant, and broadcaster and writer, Jenny Trent Hughes. We meet Jacqueline DeRocas, president of Tech UK, who talks about growing up in an abusive childhood, the resilience that gave her, and just why we need more women in tech. Plus, we meet a woman who has literally swum the seven seas. Underwear, armpit hair, many imitators, but no one compares. Badass Women's Hour XL with Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell, and Emma Sexton on Talk Radio. One, two, three, four! So in the studio with us, Jacqueline Duracus CB. Hello. Hello. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining us. It's very exciting. I saw you being interviewed at an event about, gosh, three years ago now. And I remember watching it and thinking, if I had even a tenth that much poise, my life would be transformed. You were so graceful and charming and thoughtful. So I'm delighted to have you in the studio. Wow, thank you. What a no welcome. <laughs> yeah. uh, so Jacqueline, you are the president of Tech UK. If anyone who doesn't know, what does, what does that involve? Tech UK is a trade body. So mm-hmm. it acts as the voice of the technology industry. It's got 950 members from the very large tech companies to very small ones. And essentially what we do is create conditions for the industry to thrive. And we do that by poking the government in the eye and making sure that our voice is heard. And when I think of the UK, when I think of the tech industry, I think 20-something-year-old white dudes in Converse and T-shirts. That is not you. Okay. <laughs> Although I am, I am going to say though, I have got my Converse in my bag, and I, I just switched them I in the section. You dressed up for us. Thank I you. did. I did. <laughs> but yeah, we do get around quite fast, so we need to be in flats. Nothing wrong with that. <laughs> How much of that is a correct perception of the tech industry? We have seventeen percent of women in tech, so from a gender perspective, it's miserable. Mm-hmm. In cyber, when you dissect it even further, in cyber we only have 10% of women and in engineering only 6%. Why so, is that? Because, oh, for so many reasons. And it wasn't always like that, actually. You know, when you think about the film Hidden Figures, mm-hmm. we had women who were amazing mathematicians who, you know, 
created calculations and did all the really heavy lifting on the software side, the admin side. And actually the men were tin men. They oh, sold all the hardware. hardware yeah. um, but when the personal computer was invented, then it got, you know, to be a bit of a, a more mainstream yeah. male kind of thing. And men started to sell that. Uh, and all the marketing was aimed at men from a personal computing perspective. So that's the market they aimed at. And the women faded into the background. And it's quite interesting that I think you'll find that um, it's not attractive to women. We have very male-dominated culture in tech uh, it, for the most part. And women don't find it attractive. It's walled up behind three-letter acronyms. It's a bit mm -hmm. of a closed club. And we don't do a huge amount to make it open. There are some incredible women running big tech companies, though, but we don't really sort of see or hear about them. We tend to think Mark Zuckerberg. We tend to think of the guys. Do you? Is that because the women aren't really putting themselves forward or is it because they just don't get the same airtime? I think they don't get the same airtime for sure. I think also you know, women tend to work really, really hard. They tend to do stuff in the business the men are more out there and so you know it is the exception when we have a great role model at the top of a business but actually let's face it you know you are a role model whether you choose yeah. to be or not and I think when we look at these companies run by um, men who are also exceptional and very good at what they're doing I'm not yeah. saying that the rise of women needs to to mean the demise of men but I do think we need more women up there so that more women aspire to be up there as and well. And if you look at leadership in terms of tech is it uh, would the figures be even lower? Yes. Because you're talking about tech generally aren't you when you're saying 17 yes. percent so yeah. I'm imagining I know I do leadership coaching and started 20 years ago I don't think I saw a woman in the first five to seven years at all. No and uh, I think that's right I think I mean if you look at the um the fortune 500 I think there are, I may get the stats slightly wrong, but the sentiment is right, which is 22 years ago there were, you know, 31 female CEOs and now there's something like 21. So we have gone backwards in terms of women at the top and it's actually quite shocking. It's hard to be a woman when there's, you know, flexible working is difficult, when yeah. you're supposed to be always on. You know, we have these norms which are inbuilt bias into the world of work and I think that does preclude a lot of women from even wanting it let alone being it. I well, thought, yeah, sorry, go. I was going to say that I have a, a, a question that I've been grappling with. I was speaking to somebody recently, uh, three different people actually, three different organizations in finance and one was a woman and the other two were men and they were saying that they have been encountering an enormous problem over the past 10 years where their figures as well with women are regressing and they're trying desperately to get to the bottom of what the problem is and they can't figure it out. So it would seem as if it's something, it's a gender issue as well along with the actual technology, finance, whatever it is. So from your position, your exalted position, what do you think it is that we need to do differently to attract more women? I don't think it's any... And keep them. Exactly. Retention is really important. And I think that's an interesting point, actually, which is that we can create the numbers initially, 
but keeping them and then creating that succession plan afterwards is really tricky. So it becomes almost tokenism at a certain point yeah. in time, and that, that makes it hard. I think the conditions for women to thrive are certainly around culture, but then in order to create that culture, we need women at the top because fish yeah. rots from the head down, I think. <laughs> and we, so we need to create that culture. We need to create that role model which says when you walk out at 2.30 in the afternoon to do whatever you're doing, caring commitment of whatever, then that's okay. But people seem to be stuck at the desk thinking, you know, should I, should I go? It's changing a little bit in tech where we are a little bit more flexible on that stuff. But I still think there are norms which are inbuilt bias, which mean that it's very difficult for women to survive in those, in a very fast paced, always on leadership environment, particularly. And a lot of that definitely is flexible working, but also expectations we put on ourselves. Well, the funny thing, because I was I'm of an age that I was in New York, in the corporate world in the early 80s, late 70s, early 80s. And I remember that it was when women were just starting to be around the boardroom tables, so to speak. And there was this war that most women seemed to be having within themselves mm. because they didn't know they they knew they belonged there. It's like I've read enough about you, you know, just to know that you knew you belonged there. But yet there was this dialogue, this inner dialogue about, do I really belong here? Am I an imposter? Do I need to act like a man to be accepted? What does it mean? Act like a man versus act like a woman. So do you feel that that's a question that we need to answer within ourselves before we can move forward? It's certainly a question I had to answer myself so sir it, it, in the in 1999 I was offered um I was not I was up for a promotion which I put myself forward I had 20 times more experience than the person I was up against for this role and he got the job he ran a business of 10 million while you ran a business of 300 million. I've it, seen it the was, notes. Yeah, oh my God. We're talking you. like yeah, a, yeah. a whole other scale. <laughs> okay. <laughs> You're not going to say it, so <laughs> I'm going to say it. Yeah, go on. So the spectrum was, you know, it was very different scale. And I asked for feedback. You know, why did I not get this job? And they said, Jacqueline, we simply don't put women on the leadership team. And... I am a big believer in looking for the miracle, and I have to admit I had to look very hard for this one. <laughs> yeah. But the miracle was, at least he told me, because if Let's I be had honest, been yeah. there for another five years, not knowing that I would never be promoted, mm. then, then I really would have been pissed off. But what happened was I went off to get my own role as a managing director, and I got that role. And I sat in this big office with a bar in one corner, a boardroom table in another my assistant which I'd never had before sat outside and I thought oh my god I've got this job as a managing director what does that what does that mean I don't even know what one does so it was so interesting I suffered deeply from imposter syndrome at that point and it's exactly what you're saying which is you know no one really defines it for you when you get to a certain yeah. level and so you can either sink or swim. And what I chose to do was I thought, I'm going to run out of all the... I, in fact, I don't have any answers. I'm going to run out of all the answers before anyone you know, even gets up in the morning. So I thought the only way to survive in this role 
is to ask questions. And they all they all started to say, oh, my God, don't go into that room. She asks so many questions. <laughs> and she's, you know, she eats razor blades for breakfast. But that's like the antithesis <laughs> of hero leader, isn't it? Because hero leader doesn't doesn't need to ask questions. Because hero leader knows the answers. Exactly. So immediately right. you're looking at a new style of leadership by doing that. Exactly right. And what I found was it was the shorter route to success. And thank God I did think, you know, that. But actually that, you know, that resilience I built because childhood meant that I didn't have anyone to rely on. So I had to be quite resourceful. And I'm not sure that that's true for everybody. I think, you know, your, your upbringing does have a, a reflection on how you behave in the workplace later on. I'm yes, going to ask you about that in just a minute. <laughs> so you have the most fantastic, just beautiful story of resilience and determination in the face of adversity, really. And that we're going to talk about next here on Badass Women's Hour XL. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. She'll get you talking. We're in the studio with the fabulous Jacqueline DeRosser and also my lovely co-hosts for today, Carrie Grant and Jenny Trent Hughes. Jacqueline, before the break, you said that you learnt resilience from your childhood. Tell us a little bit about that. Well, I grew up in Folkestone above my Chinese father's Chinese restaurant. And um, that was tricky. He was a violent man. And... um, my mother, actually, she married him and on the f- the first day of her honeymoon, he pulled her out of the car by her hair. So it got down and dirty really quickly for her. She stayed eight years, including having myself and my brother. And so I think I spent my childhood mostly trying to be invisible because I didn't want to attract the attention. I, and I do actually to this day still feel guilty about that because I wasn't there to protect my mum. I know I was only little, but there is something oh, around that, that that is baggage. And I think, um, yeah, I, as I get older, I, I reflect on that quite a lot. And then we, we ran away with the, the Catholic priest in, in Folkestone, where we were, gave my mother money to, to run. He said, it's time. She was She had a black eye every week. It was just not a good situation for her. But being Catholic, that's a big decision because that wasn't okay. And so she ran away to Swindon to her parents um, and the Catholic priest in Swindon wasn't quite so forgiving. He said, you should not be leaving your husband. So very conflicted scenario. And then she married, she divorced, ugly divorce, and then remarried my stepfather a few years later, um, who was, shall we say, not very fatherly as a stepfather and that was very difficult for me I I think childhood was certainly a place of insignificance and hiding what do you think you learned from that how did it develop you do you know I don't know about you but as a child or growing up sometimes you acquire labels that either you give yourself or somebody gives you and I think I gave myself the label of survivor probably at about the age of four So I was very resilient because I didn't have anyone to depend on and I didn't have anyone to reach out to. And I think, you know, I think you just go in on yourself. I certainly did and and relied on my own resources. But then the flip side of that is that I didn't ask anybody for help. And I still don't much. You, you, if you have that kind of childhood, you are living in a kind of hyper-vigilant state, which is fabulous for going into industry 
because that make great leaders in the in the sense that the making of the leader is great because that hypervigilant never off switched on really listening the whole time deep listening because you're you're able to listen at a deep level because you're used to having to do that the downside of that is you can burn out really quickly once you get that success so how was that for you even though it gives you that kickstart that impetus to get off the ground but how did that pan out as you then have reached the top and you know you you do you you're an amazing human being you know which is lovely of you to say thank you very much <laughs> and very articulately put may i say i think i have something else which is enormous fear of failure so couple that with burnout and all the things, the <laughs> potential burnout. I can't do that either. You know, that's not an option. Not allowed. No, survive. exactly right. So, you know, I'm, I am, um, I've made lots of choices in life, not always turned out. I'm on my third and final lovely husband who has joined us here today. Um, but he is a yoga and meditation teacher. And so, you know, there good are... Good picking. <laughs> right? Good we picking. like him already. That way you don't have to run to classes all the time. You just come home, yeah. he's there. Yeah. It's all there. Exactly. <laughs> and, you know, from people like, like Roger, you learn that ability to just find some space, even if it's tiny, it's space to just rebalance, reboot, reset. But I, I will admit I learned that late in life. And honestly, I think previously... I just slogged myself to death like a cart horse. I mean, I just absolutely, I, I think if I, if I would say one of my biggest, biggest characteristics would be stamina. Yeah. Uh, you know, it is, it is because I've had to. Well, I think also too, when you, because when I listened to your Desert Island discs and I was crying and there was, I was resonating all over the place. <laughs> but one of the things that really struck me is that uh, because hearing you say it then helped me understand something about myself is that when you grow up in an environment where you have to do it all yourself it's basically like you're raising yourself mm -hmm. yeah. and so you develop this odd sense of um it's like okay i've done this I, I know I can do this. And then that sense of accomplishment, I think, follows you in different areas in your life because you figure, I've raised myself, so whatever this project is, you know, I can get it done. Yeah, I think I think that's true. I, I, not a lot phases me. Yeah. And actually, I made a career out of being a troubleshooter because that hypervigilance yeah. was got a lot of cortisol running around your body yes <laughs> adrenaline Huge. constantly yeah. yes absolutely and and i i probably created that role and that branding for myself because yeah. it felt like i was leveraging all of the things that i could muster and bring to the surface and 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 actually gift forward which i think is really important in a world where diversity in tech is so poor that I really think other people's journeys shouldn't be this hard mm. and I passionately believe that we need to equal the playing field not just for women though for all minority voices and it's particularly important in tech actually because you know if algorithms are now going to decide whether you get a university place mm -hmm. or a job interview oh, then we need to make sure that diversity is designing the algorithms. Otherwise, we're going to have a world that doesn't include everybody. Well, it seems particularly important when we're thinking about things like AI, artificial intelligence, exactly. and how we create that and what that looks like. 
sort of famously there was the apple watch that when they first designed it didn't work on anybody who wasn't very light-skinned because they'd only tested it on white people yes and sort of that understanding that actually, just beyond i know it's stupid, astonishing isn't it? i'm not being <laughs> funny, I mean, but like come like, on well, how, how did that get through the testing process but yeah. well it got through the testing process because it was tested by the same people who built mm. it yeah. and you know let's face it women hold up half the sky yeah. and if you don't believe that the input is as important as the output then i guess i guess the bottom line is, is if it's not diverse it's simply not ethical have things changed give us some hope like obviously it's changed for you but has it changed generally in terms of uh, obviously female to male but also just in terms of diversity i think it has in one way which is that the me too campaign has helped raise the voice for the the permission to have this conversation i also think the gender pay gap has meant that we've got more transparency in um, what's going on, who's getting paid what, because whether you believe in the metrics being right for gender pay gap or not, what it does tell you is where the money and influence is in a company. And I think that is important because if you look at retail, just as an example, only 8% of positions of leadership and finance are with women in retail. And yet the consumers don't reflect that. (laughs) Weird, right? That's not even tech. Well, Every business is tech. Mm. But actually, you know, it's just odd that we have, it's all right for women to consume, but not quite all right for them to lead and build these businesses. I think it is changing. I think we have got more female entrepreneurs. We don't have enough investment going into female-led businesses. I think it's only 2% um, of VC money, venture capital money, Mm. going into female-led businesses, which is also very odd. That's because of the venture capitalists. Yeah. It's the thing of hiring your own the whole time, isn't it? Absolutely. Oh, Absolutely. Oh. But what do you feel that we should be telling we should be telling our daughters mm. and what should we be telling other people that we know who are minorities of one reason or another to to bring them to the table? So I think there's two things. One is I don't think the cavalry is coming. So I don't think there's <laughs> a single entity that's going to solve it. Yes. I think we all have to play our part. And I would just like everybody in any opportunity of influence to ask a simple question, which is, where are the others? And if we all do that, when when we see that there is no diversity or inclusion in the room, then I think things will change because calling it out really does matter every meeting i go to at the moment where i do public speaking i say also available in brown have a look around the room <laughs> excellent love it because it's just it's not there yeah it's no, just not there it isn't and I the desire's think. there there's this huge desire to reach out and you know that people will give it lip service but when you say okay so how are you positively employing they're, they're, it's not happening yeah. and i agree and when i do speaking engagements i insist on diversity across whatever conference or meeting that mm. i'm attending because i don't want to be part of something that isn't Jacqueline, what's the response like to that? Because I go into lots of companies and do training with them and coaching and and Carrie says there's a lot of people nodding and smiling and oh yes, oh yes. And then I feel like they kind of walk out the door and everything goes back to normal. How have you found, and actually what I have noticed is that over the last few years, I feel like it's got a little bit more confrontational. 
So before people would walk out the door and be like, oh, that was very interesting. I'm going to think about that and maybe it will appear at some point in my life. And now I feel like I'm talking to people who are feeling, particularly for a lot of white men, who are feeling a bit victimized, Mm. who feel like, you know, by actually even just having this conversation, somebody is saying to them, well, you're not okay. And I'm I'm not saying you're not okay, but I'm just saying other people are okay too. Yeah. What's what do you find the responses like? I, I think it, it's a spectrum. Mm. Um, I do think that the narrative does matter. Yeah. I don't think we necessarily have to create parity and have dead bodies around us. <laughs> so, you know, I do think that it is it, it is a positive campaign and a positive narrative which says that diversity creates better business outcomes. It creates better business decisions it's much more inclusive and I think our words our very specific words and narrative around this will carry us forward it's a problem if we go at it and rage against the machine I believe it it never worked for me I'm not a confrontational person Um, but I do like to I do like to create an opportunity for everybody to be heard and for everybody to feel significant and actually that was uh, I learned it on a um, a hostage negotiation course that I did. Oh, how cool. Which, <laughs> who does that? Right. So I did. I found myself in France for 10 days on this course called Nonviolent Communication. Which is oh, Nonviolent Resistance? Nonviolent Communication. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah, yeah, I do that as a parent. And MVR, yeah, it's amazing. Nice. Oh, yeah, that, that. that. Yeah, I'm with all that. Right. And the reason I did it was because I met the Dalai Lama fleetingly. And he said, you should meet my friend Godfrey. And Godfrey was a hostage, you know, negotiator. And this is this was his cause. Because he said, I came out of my tent in a war-torn area. And mm. he, he was met by a terrorist who had a Kalashnikov to his guide's head. And he said, Jacqueline, when all you've got are your words to defend yourself with, oh, yes. you tend to choose them rather carefully. <laughs> oh, yes. And I think that is important when we're campaigning for a positive, inclusive outcome. And the rise of women does not mean the demise of men. I am very passionately uh, positive about that. I would say hear, hear to that, because that's, oh, yeah. that's something that I talk about a lot as well. I think that that you know, if you want to, if you want to come to the table, then come to the table in peace. Yeah. And you just somehow have to find the balance where you're not groveling, you're not begging, but you're also not coming with a machete in your hand, yeah. expecting yeah. that you're going to s- submerge everybody into your will, and you have to do this or give me this because you owe me. That just doesn't work. No, and we don't want to create, uh, you know an environment of entitlement either i mean we, you know this has been hard to get where we are and i think people you know do need to you know create opportunity for themselves i think that is important it's not going to be necessarily an easy ride but it should be an equal playing field yeah jacqueline thank you so much for joining us jacqueline Dorocca, cb um president of tech uk fantastic story and very inspiring and You're amazing such a beautiful are we voice allowed to, to applaud yes Yay. Yay. Woo-hoo. thank you for joining us <laughs> millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from noom like evan who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds salads generally for most people are the easy button right for me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Wow. Nice. Yeah. What you're hearing are the sounds of people everywhere putting on Bomba socks, underwear, and T-shirts made from absurdly soft materials that feel like plush clouds. Yeah, that plush. And the best part? For every item you purchase, Bombas donates another to someone facing homelessness. Bombas. Big comfort for everyone. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST. Code ACAST. The Vampire Strikes Back. Badass Women's Hour XL on Talk Radio. Beth French is a marathon swimmer, which if you're not sure what that is, somebody who does some quite insane things. Beth, tell us about your journey to conquer seven seas. Um, The Ocean Seven is a list of channels around the world Mm -hmm. um, that was put together by the World Open Water Swimming Association. And these different channels are basically designed to take a swimmer apart. So you've got things like England to France, Spain to Morocco, Northern Ireland to Scotland north south islands of new zealand so they're all pretty big badass channels um and yeah they've all got different difficulties uh you know so you've got different wildlife that you might face obviously the english channel and the straits of gibraltar are very busy with shipping some of them are cold some of them really warm all of them are quite long (laughs) so yeah ocean seven um came about i i was basically i was a baby that would take off my nappy and climb in a bucket if it had water in it i was Mm -hmm. the proverbial water babe um, but when I was 10, I got ill um, and it wasn't diagnosed till I was 17 and in a wheelchair that I had Emmy. And you know, kind of having my adolescence sort of wiped out drove me to feel compelled to kind of overachieve when I was well. And I was really lucky to have a period of about 12 years of complete remission where I came out like a greyhound from the stocks and just went nuts and did as much <laughs> as I could. And apparently I can do quite a lot. So, yeah. Yeah, just swim. a bit. <laughs> Um, so there's a new documentary out called Against the Tides, which looks at you conquering the Ocean Seven. What was your motivation to do it? Apart from the fact you've been suing forever, what was the thing that made you think, right, I'm going to do this? It, it was really to test uh, my boundaries. And um, that all came about when I was told in my mid-20s I couldn't have kids. Um, hormonal complications, due to having had ME through my whole adolescence. And so when I turned 30 and found myself pregnant, um, I very quickly realised I was going to become a single mum. And then when he was born, it turns out that he's autistic. So my life hadn't been normal by anybody's standards. Um, And there I was facing single parenthood with a child who might have difficulties and might not be able to have a quasi-normal life. So how was I going to make this a positive thing for him? I wanted to show him that you could overcome your limitations, your diagnoses. You didn't have to be limited by other people's expectations. And that's what set me on this path. (laughs) Most people would be like, okay, I'm going to show my child (laughs) something really simple. Like we can make four dinners in in multitask, (laughs) but you had to do like seven oceans. 
Yeah. Like, you've set the bar high for that kid. <laughs> yeah, I was terrified of getting ill. I think that's what it came down to. I was, re- you know, if anything's going to test your stamina and your stress levels, it's being a single mum. And, and parenting a child with any kind of um, special needs or, or difficulty, um, you know, that, that raises the stakes as well. So, so what's more difficult, the parenting and the being a single mum? Oh, swimming's the- easy. Swimming is my time off. Yeah. Yeah, it's swimming is headspace. It's meditative. No one can hear me it's scream. Respite care, isn't it? Totally. <laughs> find me another ocean. Please. Exactly. <laughs> well, you hand your life over to somebody else. You do. You say, look, do you know what? You tell me when I need to eat. You tell me which direction to swim in. You tell me that I'm doing okay. It's perfect. Yeah. You you hand over responsibility entirely. I've got somebody on shore looking after my boy. I'm free just to be an outboard motor with a mouth. It's fantastic. <laughs> so it says here each swim can take up to 20 hours. Yes. What are you thinking about during that time? Uh, the best moments are when you think nothing. So it is very meditative. I mean, when I was running away from being ill, um, I ended up in Thailand and, and ended up ordaining for a year as a Buddhist monk, like you do, right? Um, studying meditation. <laughs> and and that, I know your face. That's I mean, fantastic. Amazing. I mean, for, yeah, for the record, there, there are some open mouths. Um, so yeah, it is very meditative being face down in the water. I mean, you have to like the colour blue. You really do. <laughs> because there is no horizon. You are face down either in pitch black where you can't see your hand at night. Oh, that's scary. At night? Yeah. You, you have do to these the shenanigans night. at night? It, if it takes 20 hours, some of it's going to be dark. Oh no no no! <laughs> Going alongside you with a big light. No, you don't I want that. Like a showbiz television. No. Exactly. You don't want the light because then the little fish rise to the surface towards the light, and then bigger fish come to eat the little yeah. fish. Forget the light. There you Forget go. The yeah. Forget the light. Forget the light. Okay. No. Yeah. What was the scariest point for you? Uh, the scariest point of all the seven channels, I, I suppose it's got to be in the second channel um, of the seven when I was in Hawaii, where I'd been swimming for ten hours. And it was one o'clock in the morning. And in the Pacific Ocean, because the movement of the water is so big, you have a fishing boat that stays as close to you as you can. But in the Pacific Ocean, it can't stay alongside you. So you have a kayak that stays alongside you. And then the fishing boat leapfrogs ahead. And then you go along with the kayak behind it. So it leapfrogs ahead a couple of hundred yards. And at one stage, at one o'clock in the morning, the boat leapfrogged ahead. I lifted my head to take my hourly drink of water. And that's when the kayaker said, please don't tip me out. But there's a shark behind you. And it was a seven-foot tiger shark that was curious, but it did go underneath me, round the other side of the kayak and sit with its nose resting on the kayak for 10 minutes. (gasps) Uh, So we couldn't move. So we had to just sit quietly, stay calm and chat about how beautiful a night it was until the, the pilot boat came back round to see why we weren't getting any closer was a bit of a hair-raising moment. Please speak, guys. Is there ever a point where you just... We can't. That's that's a little bit irresponsible. Like you're a mum, like you're risking your life. Yeah, I did have some existential crises after that. Yeah. Um, But you take all mitigating safety risks into account. So you have a safety crew with you. Um, And at the end of the day, more people get killed by cows than sharks every year. Um, You've actually pe- reasoned this out, haven't you? Oh, I spent a lot of time in my own head in the last 10 years. When you're face down for 20 hours, you think about things a lot. No, so I mean, if I had a penis, a lot of people wouldn't ask me that question. It sounds yep. strange, no, but... I meant as a single parent. Absolutely, yeah. yeah. So, you know, the, the female side of it, you know, I don't pay attention to. As a, as a single parent, yes, it really did come into my head. Um, but having done my homework, sharks aren't out to eat us. They really aren't. And... It was. I was not really in any immediate danger at all from that shark. I could see that it was 
passive. It was placid. It was curious. It was not going to bite me. It was just wondering what on earth I was doing in its hometown. Wow. This is amazing. How long did it take you to prepare for this? Uh, probably five years. I took because because I'm yeah. a single mum. I mean, when I trained for the English Channel, I gave myself two years to train. Some people train for it in nine months. I gave myself oh my two gosh. years because I only trained when my son was asleep. So I was mum first and I was only mum as far as he was concerned. I was mum who just talked about doing something cool. And he came with me to Dover with a babysitter and he had his own big swim by going down to Dover Harbour and all he could see were rocks so he knew I was safe and I got back in time to put him to bed which was the most proud moment of my life. Not reaching France yeah. but the fact that I did it in time to get back to put him to bed. So that was two years just to do a single channel. Swimming seven in a year logistically I had to start booking them up so far in advance because all these different channels have different associations yeah. that require different uh, swims that you have to do like I had to swim a six hour more than six hours in under 13 degree water to attempt one of these swims so you have to do that within a year of doing that swim and you have to send your medicals in so yeah it took me a long time to organize Did you have to get a sponsorship I would have loved to have gotten sponsorship um but it's very difficult. I mean, channel swimming is very difficult to get sponsorship for yeah. because even the best swimmer in the world, you are talking about the weather, you're talking about the tides. It's very difficult to guarantee you're going to make it to the other side. And there was some one channel that I couldn't even make it into the water during the week that I was given because it had 50 mile an hour winds and there was no way I could get in the water. So we had to delay that swim. Beth, this is absolutely amazing. If you want to hear the whole story, the documentary Against the Tides is coming out When's it Friday correct? next week. Coming Friday, out Friday the next week. I mean, I can't tell you that we have all just been sat here in complete awe. Can for I the last breathe 10 minutes. now? <laughs> like, I've been Who holding is this my amazing woman? <laughs> oh, uh, I'm sorry, I'm exhausted. <laughs> oh, it's amazing. been amazing talking to you, Beth French, uh, superstar swimmer and star of Against the Tides. Thank you so much for joining us. We've loved chatting to you. This has been the Badass Women's Hour podcast with me, Harriet Minter, Natalie Campbell and Emma Sexton. If you want to hear more from us, you can come follow us on social media at Badass Women's Hour HR um, or leave us a review and tell us how much you love us. We really need to feel the love. Five stars should do it. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.